Well, happy Reformation Day. <laughs> yes! 504 years ago, you know, we were champs. Uh, yes. Uh, Reformation Day, if you don't know, is uh, October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther decided that he had enough with the Roman Catholic Church practice of indulgences. And so he nailed 95 theses against them to the door in Wittenberg, Germany. And that was the, the shot that started the Protestant Reformation, for which we should be very thankful because we're all Protestants. So a big day in the life of the church, historic, and a big day in the life of Lakeview, uh, so thanks for being here. Um, you'll probably see a lot of uh, uh, less familiar faces today, uh, especially tonight as we get to honor Brother Alan and Miss Kim uh, on their last day uh, serving the church here at Lakeview. Obviously, they're not going to go anywhere. Um, they'll still be here in Auburn. They'll still be faithful members of Lakeview, but uh, it's a historic day. Um, Brother Al is only the fifth pastor of Lakeview. Brian will be the sixth, and so um, after 42 years of faithful ministry, this is a Pretty momentous day in the life of our church. So thanks for being here. Hope you'll make it tonight at five o'clock. All right, so you should have found Matthew chapter 10. Uh, today we're going to talk through the whole chapter uh, in what's been normally called the mission discourse. The mission discourse. Last week we finished up Matthew 9 and saw a preview of the kingdom of God. It's going to be a, a place where redeemed sinners enjoy the fellowship of God, the removal of sin, and the conquering of Satan and his schemes once and for all. And we ended Matthew chapter 9 with this prayer that the Lord of the harvest would raise up workers to send into the harvest field. This is what Jesus is asking his disciples to do. In other words, Jesus is asking his disciples to pray that God would send out followers of Jesus on mission to go and make more disciples. So today we come to what many call the mission discourse in the book of Matthew. Matthew's going to tell us some things, uh, or Jesus is going to tell us some things, according to Matthew, uh, about mission and how we live uh, in light of the task that God has given us. Jesus is giving the 12 disciples some important teaching before he sends them out specifically to the people of Israel. And, and while that's a remarkable, unique event, right? Like the, the time in between the Old Testament era, the time of Israel, and the time of the church in Acts chapter 2, that the period of Jesus' life and ministry is unique and remarkable, we must notice that there's something missing in this section. So I'll just kind of tease this out right now. We're going to read Matthew chapter 10, and Jesus is going to give a bunch of teaching about what to do when the disciples go on mission, and what are the things they're supposed to say, and how are they supposed to act, and what are they supposed to do, and who are they supposed to talk to, and, and then we're going to get to Matthew chapter 11, and it says, now when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. We, we never see the disciples go. We never read about them actually going out into the mission field, into the harvest, so to speak. I think that's for a reason. I think that's totally on purpose for Matthew. I think Matthew is trying to draw us in as the readers of his gospel to listen to what Jesus has to say to his disciples and to help us to recognize that in many ways, Jesus is also talking to us. He's also speaking to you and me as disciples today and how we might go out into the harvest field as laborers. So let's read together and see what the Lord has for us. We'll start in verse 1 of Matthew 10. 
And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, then Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing him, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let's pray before you go any further. God in heaven, we know that you uh, sent your son, Jesus, on a mission to live a life that was perfect, not at all tainted by sin, to die on the cross for sinners like me, like for all of us in this room, to rise from the dead, conquering sin and death and offering eternal life to all who would come to find rest for their weary souls. Lord, we know that God, you have sent your son on a mission and you are on a mission to make all things new in Christ. And so Lord, we should expect that if we're followers of Jesus, we too have been given a mission. So God, help us to rightly understand what our mission is as the people of God and by your spirit, give us the grace to be faithful to it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I wanna see three things with you this morning in the mission discourse. Number one, We see from this first section in Matthew 10 that Jesus sends his people under his authority, right? So Jesus, all throughout the gospel of Matthew so far, we have seen him teach, we have seen him heal, we have seen him act, we've seen him forgive sins, we've seen him do all of these kinds of things with authority. He doesn't just have the might to do something, he has the right to do it. And right here at the beginning of Matthew 10, it says that he, that is Jesus, gave them, that is the disciples, authority. He gave them authority. He gave them the authority to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to show mercy and compassion to those who are around them through miraculous signs like healing and exercising spirits. This list of 12 disciples is there for a reason also, right? So you remember at the very beginning of Matthew, we read the genealogy and that list of names is easy for us to kind of gloss over and overlook, but Matthew's doing something for a purpose. And in the same way, he's doing something with this list. Like the 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus is showing the world through 12 disciples that something new is happening, that the people of God are being reconstituted around him. And that the church is built on the prophets and the apostles, but the cornerstone is Christ. So Jesus sends out the disciples to specific people, right? He sends them to the lost sheep of Israel. 
So they're to go in Jesus' name to accomplish his task and reach his people. And we see these two main jobs to proclaim the kingdom of heaven and bring healing to those in need. So don't miss this. The disciples were given the, the dual task of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming to those who would listen that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then they would model what life in the kingdom would look like. Now, they would do that miraculously through various signs and wonders, but they would model it nonetheless. They shouldn't charge money for this, right? They receive this freely. They should give of it freely. The disciples shouldn't profit off of evangelization. And we understand this, right? When we send out missionaries to go reach the nations, we fund them, right? We just don't say, well, have a good time. Like we, we send them with resources so that gospel proclamation doesn't have to be behind a paywall. Right? We don't send somebody there and say, hey, for $49.99, I'll tell you the best news you'll ever hear. Right? That's not how missions work. That's not how evangelization works. No, disciples go and freely proclaim the good news with no expectation of an earthly reward. Right? I, I taught the football team uh, this past Friday morning from Colossians chapter 3 when Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, right? So yes, when you grow up and get a job and have a paycheck and have responsibilities, there's a sense in which you are working for someone to earn a wage. But as a follower of Jesus, you follow him in obedience to his word, not for earthly gain. You follow in obedience to his word because you're working for him and not for men. Jesus then says to find a worthy person who will let them stay there while they work. And that's kind of a weird passage for us. You can look at it again there in Matthew chapter 10. It says uh, in verse 12, uh, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And we look at that and we go, what is, what is Jesus talking about? What, what kind of peace do I have to give to a house? Right? And if it's not worthy, I, I take it back. My peace. You can't have my peace. Right? Jesus is talking right here about hospitality. He's talking about greetings. He's talking about showing hospitality to the guest or to the host that you are uh, in their home, right? And if that person is not worthy, if that person is not an ally to the gospel of the kingdom, then you don't need to stay there and show hospitality. You need to move on and find another place that is hospitable. And if you're not welcome, Jesus says, Shake the dust from your feet and move on. This is a symbol of the removal of favor. And Jesus warns that great judgment will fall upon that place that rejects their proclamation, right? Worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. So we understand the disciples are being sent out to proclaim the kingdom. But what does all that have to do with us, right? I told you at the beginning, Matthew is not just writing to the original audience in the first century, but by the power of the Spirit, he's also writing to you and me in the 21st century, Well, we've been called to go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, right? We've been given a great commission that we'll read about when we get to the end of the gospel of Matthew. And we've been given a charge to live as citizens of a new kingdom, right? We've been given the call to live our lives in light of who God is as our king, as our ruler. And we've been called to proclaim the good news and show compassion and mercy. And we don't charge for those things, right? Like we're building some kind of religious empire. And it's providential that we're talking about this on Reformation Day when 
for hundreds of years, the Roman Catholic Church was doing just that. They were putting gospel proclamation and salvation behind a paywall. They were building up an empire for themselves and for their own power. And one of the beauties of the Protestant Reformation is that in light of uh, recent inventions that we talked about Wednesday night at our costume party, if you were there, the printing press was able to give the word of God into the hands of the people of God. And when the people of God got the word of God, they started to ask really good questions about how the church was operating And it led to the Reformation. How do we find worthy people? Well, there's wisdom in you and me when we go out into our lives finding allies in the gospel. Now, my hope and prayer is that the people in this room would be worthy people to count as encouragers and allies as you proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. But maybe it's another believer in your math class that goes to a different church. Maybe it's another believer on your sports team. Whatever the context is, Jesus is giving us some principles that we are not to go about doing this work alone. There's no such thing as a solo Christian in scripture. I mean, even Paul had Silas and Timothy and Barnabas and John Mark, right? We go out to be faithful proclaimers of the kingdom together. And notice that the disciples were not called to go and give lengthy explanations and teach and answer a million questions about the kingdom. They were called to go and proclaim. So you and I don't need to feel the burden of having to have all the answers that could possibly come as far as questions are concerned, in order to be a faithful witness. You don't have to sit there and think, well, I don't know this, this, or this, or this, so I can't go share the gospel because then I'll mess it up. If you know enough about the gospel to believe it and be a follower of Jesus, you know enough about the gospel to go and proclaim it to someone else. So we go and share Christ and live graciously and compassionately. And that judgment that Jesus warns of that will be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, we know that those who know and understand the gospel and yet reject it will be subject to greater wrath. So later on in the gospels, Jesus will talk about a servant who disobeys a rule that he didn't know. He was ignorant of the rule and then compares him to a servant who knew the rule and chose to disobey it anyway. And he tells his audience that the one who knew the rule and disobeyed will receive a more severe beating than the one who didn't know and still disobeyed. And so the reality is, when you and I go and share the gospel with other people, we are bringing the good news of Christ having come to save sinners to bear on sinners. And that will do one of two things. By the power of the Spirit, it will either soften their hearts to come forward in faith or it will harden their hearts and store up wrath for themselves. I mentioned it to somebody earlier. There's a a famous Puritan saying that says, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And so we recognize that when we go and share the gospel. We ought to pray earnestly for our friends and our neighbors and all those whom the people of God might reach with the gospel, that they would respond in faith. But like the disciple, the disciples rather, we should not expect to go out and find nothing but grateful listeners. 
we need to expect persecution. So let's keep reading, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the, deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So Jesus sends out his disciples under his authority. But number two, Jesus warns his people of real persecution. You and I, as followers of Jesus, come freely to receive the rest that's offered in Christ alone. But although we come freely, we need to count the cost. The cost of entry is nothing. Jesus has accomplished the work. It comes to you as a free gift. But living a life in obedience to Christ is costly. In this difficult section of Scripture, we realize that the followers of Jesus will have a target on their backs in a world that hates Jesus. We're sheep in the midst of wolves. And I don't know if you've... I've never seen sheep get together and say, hey man, let's go take down that wolf. Like, that never happens. They're like, oh no, it's a wolf, we better run. Wolves dominate sheep. We are to expect hostility if we are going out as faithful proclaimers of the gospel. And I confess, in studying for this sermon this week, the potential hostility often keeps me quiet, right? I mean, all of us have examples of this where we're at a, maybe we're at a grocery store or we're with some friends or we're at a coffee shop or we're somewhere and we feel this impression, I need to go talk to that person and see if I can't share Christ, and we don't. We talk ourselves out of it because we go, we go, is this maybe like too much of a hassle? It might be awkward. They may, they may not be a Christian and not like what I have to say. We think of a million reasons to keep ourselves quiet. And one of the main ones is potential hostility. And the reason why potential hostility is so, such a strong obstacle to faithfulness is because it's real. It's real. People might be hostile. Now, they, they usually are not, but they might be. So I read the first part of this passage, but sometimes fail to live out the next part that Jesus calls on his disciples to not be anxious about what we're going to say. He's like, yeah, you are going to go in the midst of wolves, but don't be anxious. In other words, to pick up the theme that we've had for the last couple of weeks, Jesus is saying to the disciples and to you and me, don't be afraid. Don't fear what you're supposed to say. 
Our faith in the Lord Jesus will help us overcome our fear of men. Now, we all have different reasons to fear men, right? That's a, it's kind of a loaded phrase, the fear of man. All of us want to be liked. <laughs> and this is like a natural temperament of being human. All of us want to be liked. All of us want to be respected by other people. All of us want to be given opportunities that other people can give us. All of us want to be seen in a certain way or commented on favorably by certain people or honored in front of others. And any threats that we perceive to those desires in our hearts creates fear in us. It creates fear. And there's also a fear of man due to the danger that they might bring upon us. So it's not just the good things that they could give us, which leads me to not do something potentially awkward. It's the negative, dangerous, harmful things that they could do to us that keeps us quiet as well. Now, we know that in our context, we probably don't need to worry about being flogged or being dragged before governors for the sake of our faith. But the fact is, we do have brothers and sisters who are concerned about those very things right now. Like right now, there are millions of our brothers and sisters around the world who are wrestling with faithfulness to Jesus because it may cost them their life today. And if we just gloss over this passage and say, well, all that Jesus is talking about is being bullied at school, then we're missing the weight and the gravity of what Jesus is talking about. Because you and I have... Brothers and sisters in the family of faith who read this and go, I know people that have hap- that's, that's happened to them. I have family members that that's happened to them. They're in prison right now because they were sharing their faith in public. We don't have to worry about those things in our context. But we do have other things to be aware of. So here's the good news. Look at verse 20. The good news is that it is not you who speak in those times, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The Spirit of the Father will speak through us when we walk in faith to His Word. This is incredibly comforting, right? Because it reminds us that God is with us, right? He doesn't send us out into faithful obedience to be alone. He goes with us. He goes before us. He comes up behind us. He's our helper in our time of need. But here's the sobering reality. Look at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul or the prince of demons, how much more will they malign those of his household? So if we are disciples and servants of Christ, our teacher and our master, and the world treats him like a demon, then we should expect to be mistreated. We must count the cost for following Christ. Does our life on mission to extend the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth, whether that means us going on a plane ride across the world or going across the hallway to a classmate, is it worth the hostility that we might face? We have to count the cost. 
But if we endure through the power of the Spirit, then the riches of salvation will be ours. The good news of the gospel and the teaching of Scripture is the God who saves us by grace through faith, this is Ephesians chapter 2, also prepares works for us to walk in. Right? As his workmanship, as his craftsmanship, he prepares works for us to walk in in faithfulness, to, to show the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. But that requires us to count the cost. And if we say that we know Christ, and yet we are not bearing fruit that comes through faithful obedience to his word, there is something wrong. If we say we believe in Jesus and we follow him as our Lord, which means he's the master of our lives and he has full authority over everything that we say, everything that we do, and we never have to count the cost of faithfulness to Jesus versus life in pleasure and status and influence in this world. If we never have to weigh those things and then choose Christ, there's a real danger that you Perhaps don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Perhaps you believe in the Jesus of kind of Southern United States culture. You know, that Jesus that would give you perks at work or that Jesus that would make you an honorable person in your community or that Jesus who would help you get elected one day if you wanted to run for office. That's a different Jesus than the one in Scripture. The one in Scripture counts makes us count the cost and be willing to give up our lives for his sake. The Jesus of our culture wants to give us everything this world has to offer. We have to count the cost. All right, let's keep reading. Last section, verse 26. Jesus continues the pattern. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever, does, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose 
his reward. Third point, yes, we count the cost for real persecution, but here in the last section, Jesus promises his people of God's goodness. Jesus promises his people of God's goodness. He continues the pattern, right? Over and over and over in this passage, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear them. But there is one person to fear, right? Do not fear the one who can only kill the body. Rather, fear the one who can kill body and soul. We need to remember right here that the fear of God is different than the fear of man, right? Fear of man is sinful fear. When we fear men, it causes us to run away and hide. But the fear of God is different, right? It's like when you're young and you get hurt and you see your dad on the front porch. You run to him, not away from him. In the same way, the fear of God causes us that when we find ourselves in temptation, when we find ourselves in sin, we don't run away from God. We run towards him. We run towards his compassion, towards his grace, towards his presence. We run to him to find mercy and grace in our time of need. That's what godly fear does. And Jesus reminds his disciples and you and me as his disciples today of the providential care that God has for his people. Jesus says, there is not one sparrow. There's not one bird that falls out of the sky apart from the Father. What an insignificant point of data, right? Hey, you know that like, birds die? God does that. <laughs> Jesus is saying like, what is the most like kind of non-valuable thing I can think of? Well, two sparrows are sold for a penny. So it's not even worth a cent. And not one of those sparrows dies apart from the Father. In other words, God is meticulously sovereign over the affairs of his creation. Nothing happens apart from his good decree and his providential hand. And because God is sovereign over the affairs of dying sparrows, and then says, he knows every hair on your head. You want to talk about knowing someone intimately. He knows every hair on your head. And you're worth more than many sparrows. So don't think for a second, Jesus is saying, that the persecution that you might face or the hostility that you might face is apart from God's goodness. You're worth more than many sparrows. And he knows you. Students, we will be tempted in this life to doubt God's goodness. We will be tempted in this life to doubt God's grace. And we will be tempted in this life to doubt even his care for us at all. And Jesus is telling his disciples, and I am pleading with you, do not believe those lies. We do not have to fear this world if our fear is rightly placed on the Lord. The one who cares for us, the one who knows us, the one who is always nothing but good to us. Jesus then makes a startling claim. He says, I have not come to the world to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have come and my work will cause division. In the same way that a sword cuts something into, the work of Jesus will divide even families, which we just need to remember, families in the first century Israel are a lot tighter 
and a lot more loyal and a lot more tightly connected than families today. But even those families will be split because of Jesus. And here we have these shocking words. If you love your parents more than Jesus or your own children more than Jesus, you will not be worthy of Jesus. Well, what do you do with that? <laughs> I can't even love my mom. can't even love my son. That's not what Jesus is saying, is it? In other words, he's saying, if you have to place your allegiance in your parents or in Christ, by God's grace, it's the same, right? If you have godly parents, your, your faith in your parents is faith in your parents as they follow Jesus, right? And lead you towards Christ's likeness. But if they reject Christ and are leading you to reject Christ, and you have to make a decision, do I follow mom and dad or do I follow Jesus? And you don't choose Jesus, then Jesus says, you will not be worthy of me as my disciple. Because to choose the parents who reject Jesus is to reject Jesus. That's what he's saying. If you align yourself and place your allegiance with those who hate Christ, then you will have no part in what Christ offers those who love him. And he continues, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, as Christians who know the story, right? We know where Jesus is headed. We know what's going to happen in this story. We can read this phrase, if you do not take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. And we, we just automatically know like, oh, I know what that means. But we got to remember in the story of Matthew and, in, and before these disciples, this is the first time Jesus has ever mentioned the cross. And at this point, we can be confident they have no idea that Jesus is walking towards crucifixion. I mean, they're, they're, they're still struck that just a couple of chapters ago, he talked to a storm and it stopped. Like they're still freaking out about the fact that there was a dead girl in this house and he grabbed her by the hand and she said, no, nah, I'm alive now. Like they're, they're thinking, who is this man? And for them to think, oh, following Jesus and, and seeing his trajectory, oh, it will totally lead to him being mocked and flogged and arrested and crucified. That is not at all in their minds. So what is Jesus saying? If you don't take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. At this point, when they hear this, they know that the cross is for nothing but death. The Persians invented crucifixion a couple of hundred years before this time because they wanted to maximize the kind of damage and shame and torture that they could inflict upon a person in order to kill them. And so for Jesus to say to his disciples, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy to be my disciples, what they would have heard is a call to follow Jesus is a call to come and die. A call to follow Jesus is a call to come and die. And that's not original to me. That's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But this is the beautiful news that we get to share when we proclaim the gospel. Because we know the rest of the story. Jesus took up his cross to die. But he didn't die for himself. 
He didn't die a worthless death. He died for sinners. Jesus ultimately went and died for you and for me. He paid our debt on the cross. He died our death on the cross. And he rose from the grave to give us new life in him. So now as his disciples, we take up our cross and follow Christ in two ways. First, we daily die to ourselves for the sake of living in union with Christ. Right? This is when Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So every day, and I have to remind myself of this every day because I'm forgetful and so are you. Every day we take up our cross and die to ourselves because the one who lives in us is no longer us. It's Christ. And my life is hidden in Christ. That's the first way that we take up our cross. The second way we take up our cross is we live out our lives each day ready ready to give everything up for the sake of Christ. Ready to give up status, ready to give up influence, ready to give up livelihood, ready to give up relationship, ready to give up safety, ready to give up control, ready to give up security, ready to give up pleasure for the sake of following Christ. That's a real cost. That's a real cost. I mean, I think about the the rich young ruler. And Jesus says, you know, you're supposed to keep the law. If you keep the law, you'll have eternal life. He says, I've kept the law. And Jesus had compassion on this rich young ruler and said, one thing you lack, go sell all your stuff. Give it to the poor and then you can come be my disciple. It was a cost that he had to count, and he counted it as too high a price to pay. And so he walked away sad. But Jesus tells us whoever loses his life for the sake of Jesus will find it. So students, we go as disciples of Jesus into the world to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and to model what kingdom life looks like. We go because Jesus went for us, offering us eternal life in him. We go extending that offer of eternal life to a world in desperate need of life and truth and purpose. And some of you, I pray, some of you, may be led to proclaim this news among the unreached peoples of the world. You might hear this and realize that there are millions of people who do not know because they have never heard. And you might, by the power of the Spirit and His grace in your life, say, well, I'll go. I'll go tell them. That's a harvest ripe. It's a crop ripe for the harvest. And so there needs to be laborers there. So I'll go. If that's you, praise God. I pray the Lord would raise up laborers like that among us. As he, as he has, as he is right now. I mean, you don't, you don't know this. And again, it's so... I'm looking at Chandler right now because it's so weird to be here. 
Like, you just don't even know. Like, there's so many people in the life of our church who are saying those kinds of things about the rest of their life right now. They're saying, where do I want to be in 40 years? I think it's among the unreached. Like, praise God for that. That's, that's, not a natural, that's not a natural desire. It's not like, man, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? I think I just want to go live among the most hostile people in the world and say the exact thing that makes them hostile. No, the Spirit has to do that. And we, we are a part of a church that, that loves and believes this call. But let me encourage you, if that's not you, you need to ask yourself the question, why not me? But if it's not you, some of you may be led to proclaim the good news of the gospel right here or somewhere close. And if that's you, praise God. We may not all be missionaries being sent into the far places of the world, going to the hardest to reach places and the hardest to reach peoples, but we are all on mission. We've all been given a task. The whole church has been called to send out laborers into the harvest fields. We are all sent. We are all laborers. And how do we reap the crop? How do we get the crop off of the plant? The Word and the Spirit. The only tools you get are the Word and the Spirit. And so we pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that they might... By his grace, he might send us into a place where the crop is bountiful. But we go not with worldly wisdom, not with worldly persuasion. We go proclaiming the kingdom of heaven and modeling what that life looks like as a citizen of the kingdom. And the word tells us that will be effective. We proclaim the gospel and model the life of the kingdom. The life of the church is this life. So let's rest in the finished work of Jesus as we take up the mission. Let's not be afraid. Don't be anxious. Believe in the one who sends us all to go. Let me pray for you.